Welcome to Grab Life Big. Grab Life Big. The exclusive podcast for healthy, wealthy, generous men who choose to lead epic life. Or as a few of us say, badass rich guys who do epic shit. And now, your host, Pat Hybin. Glad you were home. I'm always home. I'm on cool. Me too. You're doing great, yeah. The only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're on cool. Is that my advice to you? And I know you think these guys are your friends. If you want to be a true friend to them, be honest and unmerciful. Life big. All right, GoBros, what is up? We are jumping into the GoBro room with Mr. Josh Amenti from Baltimore, Maryland. What up, Josh? What's up? How you doing, buddy? Hey, Josh, why don't you give everybody a rundown on yourself from the day you were born till today? Oh, gosh. Uh, is this a 60-second elevator speech? Or the... Five minutes, buddy. You got four, four minutes left. All right, great. Uh, <laughs> born in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. Raised by uh, mostly my dad as a, a child of divorced parents, went to public school, had uh, really no focus on education and all the other stuff, no actual training. My dad was actually an entrepreneur, so I saw the value of hard work and owning businesses and things like that, but it wasn't a rich dad, poor dad thing. It was just more an observation. And from there, decided I wanted to go to college because I wanted to uh, drink a lot of beer and chase a lot of girls <laughs> and uh, get an education along the way. And uh, when I graduated there, I went to Towson University in Baltimore, met my wife, stuck around. It was late 90s, graduated in 97, uh, got into the mortgage business pretty much straight out of there, doing wholesale uh, national account uh, subprime lending stuff. Then uh, by 2006, I left the business before it imploded. So um, much like you see, it's all fairly accurate what was going on in that industry. 2007, I'm flipping homes because I'd done it as a side hustle and uh, that market started to crash out. So fast forward to 2008 and uh, I have one child. My wife's pregnant with the second, my daughter Marley. And, you know, she said she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and I'm going, oh gosh, what do I do? <laughs> the uh, world is imploding as we know it. The um, uh, tumbleweeds running down the street looks like it's going to be the next great depression. So I have a friend that, that calls me and says, hey, you know, I know you're, uh, he's actually um, a mentor of mine. He said, I know you'll be great at being a, a real estate agent when you get your license and help me sell bank-owned properties because he was switched over and was in the REO department of, a, of a, a large subprime company that had plenty of work. So decided to take a chance and, you know, get my real estate license in 2008 when nobody wanted to buy homes. Then from there for about the next four or five years into about 2012 or 13, I started to get back into house flipping because the market had kind of steadied out. And in 2013, I was working, you know, 70, 80, 90 hours a week, uh, working more in my business than on it. Had a mentor that walked in my life and kind of changed uh, my perspective on things and decided to make it a business. And then from there, the last three or four years have been spent uh, creating horizontal incomes, uh, creating two businesses getting around uh, wonderful guys like yourself uh, to mastermind with and grow in every aspect of my life. That's, I think, less than five minutes, right? 
Yeah, that's awesome, man. I love it. I love this story. All right. So what are your two businesses? So I have a real estate sales team. It's called the MD Home Team. Uh, we're in the Baltimore metro area. We sell between three and 400 homes a year. And I'm fully, well, I'm on, if you're at all Keller Williams, I'm sixth level, hopefully one day be seventh level. You know, I'm not in production anymore. And then I have a house flipping business and house investing business. You know, we're buying rentals and things like that. Taking that from the side hustle it was to a fully uh, integrated second business. Got it. So how many houses are you flipping a year? This year we'll do, we're on pace to do 22. Um, our, goal is, our goal this year was to do 36, fell a little short of that. Um, but it's our first actual full year, like with systems and everything else behind it. Um, it was usually a one dozen to two dozen, either active or passive investment, usually active uh, partnerships with others and stuff like that. Um, so I'm used to doing it at this level. Our goal in 2018 is going to be uh, 50 homes. And that's our goal is to double our business. And, and so how are you doing this? Take, take me through this, you know, where you're finding these people and what numbers are you looking for? What numbers are you actually getting? That sort of thing. Cool. So we're almost 100% off market now. So we're doing direct mail marketing. Um, lead sources change, right? So in 2010, 11, and 12, I could pick up a phone, call other REO agents. Okay, I need two properties. Great. Done this week. I go out, look at them. Done. Well, that's changed. Obviously, there's a lot more competition. So we've decided to get in a situation where we're creating one-off situations with sellers where we might be dealing with uh, one or two other people, but it's not on market MLS where there's 20, 30, 100, multiple offers like up the wazoo. So we really kind of started to get very purposeful behind that marketing and actually putting capital behind it. So the answer to the question is pretty much 100% direct mail marketing plus other relationships that I may have. Okay. And um, so well, first of all, what's your goal? What do you, what's your goal? What do you try to return on these things? So we have a um, spreadsheet that we've developed that has uh, certain key metrics and there's like a red light, green light, yellow light in it built in. Uh, in layman's terms, the easiest way is basically we want to be uh, give or take, depending on price point and things like that, about a 15% return. But to break it down even further. 15% uh, when you spread it out in a, over a year? Uh, yeah, well, yes, and it would be an annualized return. It's an actual return. The annualized return would be different, right? So if we do it two times, three times, four times, it would actually right. increase. Right, so we're looking at actual return on each one, basically. 15% cash on cash return is what we're looking for. Okay, yeah, that's what I was getting at. Okay, yeah. and uh, how long is it taking you to do them on average? So I have a whole spreadsheet that's been built since I got back into flipping in 2010 and it's 150 to 170, somewhere in that ballpark. I haven't updated in the last couple of months, but our average from start to finish acquisition to disposal um, is running just shy of five months, about four and a half months. Okay. So you do two of those. So yet, let's just say you do two, you're going to do 30% on your money. You using your own money or are you using other people's money or what? We are actually, uh, it's all funded at this point. Uh, we have an equity line with the bank, a million dollar equity line. So we fund projects off that. And then the rest of it's all private private money. Um, it could be someone like yourself. Uh, we pay 10% interest and a point and we get full access to the capital and control the process. So it works really well. It's a good return for people who are used to, you know, have money in a savings account or in different vehicles that don't, you know, return that type of money on a regular basis. So. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay. And um, 
So what are your returns on it? After all, uh, all sprinkles down to the bottom. What are your net? Yeah. What are you net? Uh, actually? That's what I'm, yeah, net return is what we're looking at. So the easiest way to, let's just take a $100,000 house. Actually, it's probably not right because we wouldn't buy something that's going to sell for a hundred, but let's say a $200,000 house. Hard costs, acquisition plus rehab, want to be in between 65 and 70%. Um, now, if it's a half million dollar house, that's a little bit different, you know. Then comes the soft costs and the uh, acquisition costs and disposal costs. So really what we get into is there's about a 30 to 35% margin in there, of which we know about 15% is going to get eaten up between interest carry as long as we do it right, cost overruns, acquisition and disposal, realtor commissions, uh, closing help and all that kind of stuff. And we have it, you know, pretty much boiled down to a science basically in this market. Okay. And then, and, and so did you say the number? Or did you, I mean, what, like the last 12 months, you know, what was your actual return on your flipping business to you personally? To, I have a partner in it. So that's a little bit, uh, okay, so he's both, both of you guys. Yeah, to both of us. You know, honestly, we're in the process of uh, one of the things that happens in, in all honest transparency is that things, as you set out to do them, don't always get to where you need to be. So the person that we had running the books um, ran them a bit improperly. So we're actually rebuilding them right at this point. So I don't have that actual number. I can tell you a ballpark number just sure. based on what it is. And it's basically around two hundred fifty to 300000 And you split that with somebody else. That's correct. We got a lot of upfront costs that we're building into the business. So... On an average profitability per transaction, I do know that, and we're averaging just shy of thirty thousand per transaction. Before you pay investors, that's that's net net. No, oh, okay, that's good. Not, not not business expense, but net per project. So yeah. it would you know because there's business expenses that net per know. project. Then oh, got it. And then and then you got to pay overhead and blah blah blah. Okay, yeah, assistance. Yeah, you know, that's good. That's exciting. Costs. That's exciting. Okay, so so let's get to some nitty gritty here, Josh. What is what percentage is Josh Menti? So I'm probably in the and I say that because I'm actually working on changing a piece of it where I actually have a vacation home that I'm working on trying to trade on 1031 exchange. When and I say probably when I do that, it will actually increase, which will be done within the next six months. But based on today, I'm around thirty percent. And you have a vacation home that you're buying or selling? Uh, I have one that we've used that's in a community that does not allow rentals. So, (laughs) (laughs) Was that a mistake? No, it was not a mistake. It was actually born out of opportunity. We bought the house back in 2012 at the bottom of the market for $315,000 when all the lots that are left, it's a golf course community in a resort, uh, Beach Town. All the lots that are left there sell for between $350,000 and $425,000. So we bought a house, or I'm sorry, we bought land and we're given a free house. So it was actually an investment that we could use short term, long term. Now we've had it for five years and we're reevaluating our cost in it. So we're spending about $20,000 a year on it and getting that value back out. We spent the entire month of August there, friends, family. I know GoBros have been down. Uh, Mark Schwager's been down and uh, Sean Lowry and uh, gosh, and off the top of my head, I can't think of everybody but uh, we've been able to you know have more value coming back out of it just from memories and you know experience than than that bit but same time when I'm looking at you know my one sheet and I'm going like how can we you know change and make this really where we're as we bought it so well that we can actually 1031 exchange it into a townhouse in the neighboring community be debt-free on it and generate um, 
VRBO income around thirty to forty thousand dollars a year, and be able to use it when we want. You know, just block off time. So it actually becomes more like a fifty thousand dollar net swing because um, I have investments um, in restaurants in New York City. I just take the checks and put them into this account, which pays for our expenses for the house. So I'll now be able to reinvest that income plus the income that comes from the property and still be able to enjoy it just in a different way. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you should do that. Um, no doubt about it. Working on it. I was yeah. down there this weekend looking at property. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. All right. So uh, what about your vertical income? What's your vertical income? Between the two businesses, between three and 400000 Okay. And what, uh, how's your health? What, uh, how much do you weigh? Uh, I, unfortunately, that's been one of the pillars I've been lacking in and honest transparency. So I weigh 215 pounds. I'm five foot 11. I should be around 180. Okay. And uh, do you know what your body fat is? So I did three months ago. Uh, I don't today, but uh, it was right around 20%. So, okay, so how long have you been 215? Pretty much since 2008. <laughs> I was working All right, so, 70, 80 hours a week, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're working on 10 years. So it's been, it's not been like a new thing for you. No, no. So, Prior to that, yeah, I was. Is that, is that your worst pillar, age-defying health? I believe so, yes. And then do you have an idea, is there anything that GoBros can do to help you with that, um, low pillar? Yeah. I mean, a lot of them are, you know, we have conversations. I'm in the gym, taking steps in the right direction, doing the things. And, you know, it's just about the balance and putting it uh, to the forefront, making it the most important. Yeah. I mean, there's some accountability partners. Absolutely. That always helps. You know that. Yeah. Well, what, what would you say your best pillar is? Authentic relationships. Why do you say that? I think it's what comes natural to me. Uh, I think that uh, anybody that knows me knows that I'm honest and open and transparent and willing to give and help, but uh, also open to receiving. Awesome. Okay, cool. All right. And you've been married for how long? 14 years. Awesome. And you have one kid and one on the way, right? Uh, I actually have three kids. I have a 12-year-old daughter, a nine-year-old daughter, and a four-and-a-half-year-old daughter. I don't know where, where, what, what I was coming from, but... Um, <laughs> yeah. I mentioned one earlier uh, because... <laughs> Yeah, that was. She came during that uh, transition in two thousand eight. <laughs> that was okay. the middle daughter. I got it. That's where I got it from. All right, cool. All right, so let's see. Uh, tell me about you know what you want in your future, Josh. Like, like everybody has all rock and roll stars, Western music stars, what have you, has a greatest hits album. I want to talk to you about your, your greatest hits album. Then I want to talk to you about your future greatest hits. So in your past, what would you say the five most poignant moments of your life have been? Uh, graduating college um, was, believe it or not, and I think it's uh, born more out of uh, neither of my brothers even graduated high school. Uh, there wasn't an emphasis placed on uh, education in my family for whatever reason. I was the first one uh, in several generations to actually graduate from college, although since my mom has gone back and actually graduated after me. Um, so that was definitely a, a pretty big achievement. I actually have two degrees to come from where I came from and do what I do. I would say, and this is going to sound odd, but my dad passed away in 2011. And although that's not a great moment in my life, it actually sometimes, you know, things come out of situations like that that change the way you look at things. 
and it really started to put my my uh, thought process into there's more to to life than just working. I'm sacrificing in other areas, and I need to reevaluate what I'm doing. So there's been a lot of benefit that's come out of it in a weird sort of way. So, okay, so one of your greatest hits to get this straight was your father dying. Not, uh, I love the man. It wasn't that. Not, not directly, but indirectly. Indirectly, yes. Um, okay, because so it really changed the direction of my life at 37 years old. Okay, how? So what happened was it was like a big awakening for me to really put what life really means into perspective. My focus was in wrong direction. So when I say greatest hits, I'm actually talking about like a turning point in my life, which if I look back when I'm 80, 90, 100 years old, I will hopefully look at that point and be able to gain positive out of it. Like it sucks that that happened. He was a great friend and, you know, great dad and all that kind of stuff. But really was able to change the course of my life or take something that's really bad and turn into something good. So wait a minute. Uh, how old was he? He was 62 years old. And was it unexpected or how did he die? He had had some health problems. He had a kidney transplant. He was back to normal literally that week. I talked to him before, you know, that week, a couple of days or whatever. And he said he hadn't felt better in years. And he went you to mean the week, the week he, who gave him a kidney? Uh, it was a, he was on a, a donor list for five years. So it was I don't random. Somebody yeah. died, gave him his kidney, yeah. he got the kidney. And then what happened? His body didn't react well. No, no, he was back. That's what I was getting at. He was back to a year later, a year, almost a year to the day after the surgery. I'm talking to him. He's telling me he hasn't felt better in years since he was young. And he went to bed one night and just didn't wake up. And what the autopsy say? Uh, we didn't actually do an autopsy. Uh, it was some discussion amongst our family because in the end, it doesn't change whether he's here or not. He's gone. So what does it really matter? You know? Yeah. I guess if you don't suspect foul play or anything and, and you're just like, hey, whatever, just, you know. Definitely don't suspect foul plays when <laughs> bed one night and <laughs> didn't wake up. He uh, was yeah. probably in his bed. So. Could have been anything. It could have just been like it just shut down. His kidney shut down. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, your body goes through a tremendous amount of stress through all that. So it could be any number of things, you know. And then you, you know, you go, you bury him and um, you're sitting around and you just start reflecting and what happens? So a lot of things, you know. So I have a great wife. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that uh, you start to see yourself, right? You start to see yourself in situations or uh, I'm a dad now, right? So like you start to see things, okay, great. If, if I only lived to 62, I was hit by a bus or whatever that is. Are my kids really going to care that I worked 80 to 90 hours a week and maybe had a couple extra bucks in the bank or are they really want my time, you know? Oh, yeah. You start going through all those kind of things and it just really puts things into perspective. So how'd you change? You know, it wasn't an overnight, like it wasn't like just shut off the next day, this is what it is. But I think really what happened was my focus changed. Like I was saying, in 2012, we went and bought a beach house. It's focused around putting things in our life to get to a place where family comes first. Friendships, not working weekends, shutting things off. Slowly um, hiring and leveraging myself out of my business. Um, really focusing on stuff like I, my dad was a, a really good golfer. He, he went to college on a golf scholarship and I always enjoyed the very little bit of time I did it with him. And I always put it off like, oh, I'll just play later on. I'll play later on. I got other stuff going on. And I played two or three times a year from the time I was, you know, I'm a teenager with almost always with my dad to 
at 37 years old going, okay, I can continue to put it off. And when I'm 60, my skills will have diminished. What do I know I accomplished? <laughs> so I literally went in in 2011 to a golf course on the street and said, I'm going to join for one year, see if I like it, see what happens. And I went from an 18 handicap to a nine, caught the bug, loved the competition, was able to funnel some energy that may have been directed in other places into something, you know, that was more constructive. But the, the, the moral in it is like, I put off, I could have played so much more with my dad just thinking he would be around forever that you can't yeah. put off for tomorrow what you can do today, but I can wow. change today what happens tomorrow. Oh, wow. That's deep. That's deep. So, so now you're, you're, you know, you don't work weekends. You're taking time off, which in the real estate industry, we know runs rampant with, uh, with, you know, work, workaholicism and perf and, you know, controlism one's rampant in the business. So let's look at it this way. If you are a plumber or a government worker or uh, someone that works for somebody else, not an entrepreneur, you get 52 weekends a year times two, right? Saturday and Sunday, that's 104 days. Uh, you get two weeks off, which is another 10 days. So you get 114 days off, right? So the average Joe Schmo gets 114 days off. How many days off have you taken in the last 12 months? So this is, talks to another point of that, right? So I've always loved traveling. I've always loved experiencing. Like I don't want Ferraris and things like that. Like never have. I mean, I'll take it when I, you know, whatever. If you're worth a gazillion dollars, you can have it. I've always wanted authentic experience and, and the true experience. I don't care about the other things. So like this past year, basically, I set out at the beginning of the year on my one sheet said, this is what I'm going to do. One of which was spending the entire month of August at the beach with my family where we spent 26 days, which is pretty close to it, didn't have uh, to come back, but for one day for work. And the rest, I barely worked with some emails here and there, just to make sure I stayed caught up like once or twice a week and a couple of little things. I've been to, went to Whistler in January, uh, went to Vegas for a convention uh, in February, went to uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and, and saw you down there in March. In March, I took a week vacation, went to Puerto Rico with my wife, just the two of us. Uh, May, uh, Mark Schwager and Pete Cook and myself went out to Denver, stayed at Mike McCarthy's place that we bought in a in an auction for uh, One Life. Did some mountain biking, some awesome things out there. June, I played in three competitive golf tournaments. August, I spent the entire month at the beach. September, I went to London and Amsterdam with some buddies, um, you know, to to have a good time. And the answer, long-winded answer, to your question is. I'm seizing the day. I'm putting those things into my yeah, life. Sure, you sure are. I mean, I, I would guess, you know, if, if the government workers had a buck 14, you're well over 150. I mean, you're pushing 50%. I always believe that you should take a day off for every day you work. So that would be, you know, 365 divided by two is 182.50, right? So, I mean, you're, you're not there, but you're close. I mean, you're you're over 150, I bet, with all that. Yeah, I would say that. I would say that. There's been a lot of afternoons I've taken off and gone to play golf and hung out with friends or done other things as well, or family or trips. I love Here's it. Beach this past weekend, the weekend before we were in New York, uh, Manhattan, visiting our restaurants and some family. So, yeah, my life's blessed. Like, I'm good. That's exactly where I want to be, and I want to keep doing that. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so I think that was your third one. Um, we got a little sidetracked, but it was an awesome <laughs> conversation. What, what, uh, what are your other two? My children, they're awesome. I mean, they're everything to me. Uh, having three of them, I'll condense into one. Um, 
but each of them brings something very special to my life. So um, I think those life events, you know, milestones, greatest hits, whatever you want to call it, that's definitely one of them. Absolutely. What, um, what about in the future? What do you want your future greatest hits to be? So I'm working and focus on horizontal income streams. So I think my future greatest hit is waking up somewhere in the next five to 10 years and realizing that I'm a hundred percenter things are on autopilot and I can really check out if I feel like it because the goal isn't to work forever. Right. And I think that will be one of the things I focus on. I think that, um, you should be at a hundred percent. I mean, I, you know, you have a lot of shit, right? I mean, you have, what are you not making money on all those rentals that you have? I mean, no, actually, you, I don't what have, are, what yeah, are your expenses? So my expenses are tremendous. So it's running about $120,000 a year to run our lifestyle. It's a decent lifestyle. Nothing crazy. That's, that's not tremendous. No. Wait a minute. That's ten grand a month. Yeah. So what I don't have is a huge rental portfolio because what I've done mostly is flip homes. Oh, I, thought you had I, a bunch of, I thought you had a bunch of um, rentals and I do. You know, with the commercial on the bottom. and the. Yeah. So I have, I have seven of those with my brother-in-law and myself. I have three buildings with my current partner we bought this year. Um, I have investments in other commercial properties, shopping centers, uh, two in Ohio, one in Panama City, Florida. Uh, but these are all, those, are, those investments are small pieces, so they produce checks, but they don't produce large checks. So in a restaurant. Three restaurants in Manhattan. <laughs> so you got all this stuff, and you, your, your monthly expenses are ten grand, which, by the way, is low for three kids in the Baltimore metro area, you know, which is a pretty expensive area compared to the rest of the world. So you're at 10 grand and you're only pulling in two grand off of all those things you mentioned. Some of them I'm reallocating back towards another expense, like as I was explaining with the beach house, right? So like some of the money that's coming in, you know, gets pushed over. Some of the other uh, investments are newer. Like I said, when I woke up, when my dad passed away, I realized I need to start investing in things that are going to produce money to get us and carry us into retirement. So most of these investments were made post 2011. So like, for instance, uh, the restaurant went like this. The first one I invested was six years ago. I've been paid back three times over on that. I get about thousand bucks a month out of that restaurant, something like that. Um, but the other, the second one, the entire principal is being paid back uh, in December, and then from there on is profit. The third one of a half paid back has been open a year, year, a little over a year, year and a half, and that one will be. So as these things mature, the percent will grow because the maturity will come back, right? So it's not always an upfront. Yeah, I mean, the restaurants should make it more than 20%. That's not even included in the real estate because if you're, I mean, 20% means this. It costs you ten grand to live. If you're a hundred percent, you make ten grand a month profit. So right now you're making, according to you, two grand a month profit. Sure, a lot of the money gets rolled back in. So you know, with debt snowballing and things like that. So some of our rentals, we Rental don't pay down counts. Okay, if that counts, then I'm probably closer to forty or fifty percent. Okay, yeah, you should redo that. Okay, you could be closer to financial freedom than you think you are. Okay. Yeah. Principal pay down counts. And, you know, it's, it's a good conversation because everybody should be, you know, should know this. Like, you know, and you're a numbers guy. Everyone should have documents they look at. I do. My accountant gives them to me. I'll show them. You're coming to town later next week, actually. I'll show them to you. Um, you know, that just show where, how much you made, even if it's a penny. 
and then you know we compare it to our our monthly expenses, which you also may found it is more than twelve, more than ten, ten grand. Um, most people do. I mean, as Rock Thomas's is ninety. You know, he, he you know a month. You know, that's the extreme. And then you have other extremes. I think Daniel Del Real came on, and his was legitimately something like five, six grand or something. But he he lives massively frugal lifestyle. So anyway, so this is something to look at. Yeah. Okay. And definitely, I would love to, uh, when we sit down, like, have you, like, break down the one sheet for me, like, all of it, like, love it, you know, be able to master it at a deeper level um, yeah. than I actually have, so. All right. All right, cool. Uh, first of all, one, one thing I wanted to ask you about that I don't think a lot of people know, you kind of got raised in the real estate business by, by being a mortgage officer, right? You were the guy that, you ran a company specialized in the liar loans, right? Well, I worked for one of the top five subprime um, companies uh, as an outside sales rep. So I would go to mortgage brokers and, you know, get them to broker their loans to my company. So like a B2B type sale, I wasn't dealing with consumers and things like that. But yes, what well, we did some stated income loans and all that kind of stuff for sure. And what happened? Like what happened? What, I think a lot of people are probably interested in this. Like what was it like for you when it all came crashing down? So what's interesting is I left the business before it crashed because what happened was when I, when I started doing it in 98 and I switched over to option one in 2001, it was a different um, market then. like bankers for lack of a better word, maybe was held in esteem or something like that. And the golden rule shifted. So somewhere between 2003 and 2007, the brokers felt like they had the gold and made the rules. And to a certain extent they did. Um, in the way that Wall Street got involved in the way that products were rolled out to meet needs instead of making sure it made sense. And there's a lot of blame to go around, you know, across the board. It's not just lenders, it's agents, it's appraisers, it's Wall Street, it's, you know, you name it. It was the wild, wild west in some respects because products were being innovated daily and handed to us, go out and sell these. Okay, great. But what happened was, I didn't feel good about the business anymore. And I was literally legitimately making 400,000 plus a year. I mean, it was W2 income, but it was a sales job. And all I had to do was establish relationships and keep working it. Somewhere in 2005, when my first daughter was born, uh, when Madison was born, I woke up one day and said, I don't like the people. I don't like the business and I need to get out. And I literally set course. She was born in September. By March of 2006, I wiped my hands of it and just said, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go into the properties and start rehabbing it myself and subcontracting everything and swinging hammers and not dealing with these people anymore because I just don't like it anymore. Mm -hmm. But I saw, because I had a ton of friends in the business, what happened in 2007, 8, and 9. And, you know, like if there was 12 sales reps for option one where I worked, literally 10 of them were bankrupt or in some form of foreclosure um, by 2009. It was me and one other person who I think escaped never having a foreclosure and not going bankrupt. And that was because they were, you know, they were making a, a ton of money, writing commissions, and they just built up their expenses as well and bought, and bought houses at the peak as well, right? Is that what happened? Yeah. So um, sometimes people don't think the music's going to end. I can't speak to what others did, but what, from what I saw from the outside looking in, I would even see it at mortgage brokerages. You have somebody they snatched out of um, a cell phone store or Hooters and you know, within three months and first paycheck, they're driving BMWs in the parking lot. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was like, um, you know, uh, 
complete mayhem. And uh, there wasn't a lot of saving. There's a whole lot of um, going to strip clubs and making it rain or, you know, whatever. Yeah, live so, now, pay later, right? I mean, they, like you yeah. said, they didn't think the music was going to stop. I can remember being in Vegas uh, at, a, at a VIP lounge where one of the other reps, it's <laughs> actually a funny story. We're sitting there and, you know, we're, we're hanging out and he bought like two bottles of Cristal or whatever it was. And so one guy got sick and literally was puking in the bottle of Cristal that just got open. And I was thinking to myself, my God, that guy just threw up in $500 worth of champagne. And the guy looked at me, shrugged. He's like, ah, had a good month. Let's just buy two more of them. <laughs> and I was like, you can buy two more of them. I'm not, you know. And that was kind of the, where it was. And I don't know if part of it's the, the decade or part of it was being in my 20s and 30s or just what it was. But there was a, just a different time back then, you know. So do you think we'll see that again in our lifetime? Or do you think it's happening now? Are banks loosening up now more than, more than you would like to see? Or how, how, what do you think? What's your prediction? So I think it was a perfect storm of a lot of things that happened. Um, and usually when these things happen, and they always happen in, you know, 10-year cycles, and I think we're coming up on something, right? But generally speaking, the whole country doesn't get the flu. It's a pocket, you know, isolated circumstances, overheating in a certain market, you know, whatever that might be. Are we seeing the signs of it in San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Miami, Manhattan? Yeah, it certainly points that way, right? My whole thing is based around this, and I think we've had this conversation, Pat, that this is all, I don't want to call it a farce, um, but it's all a shaky foundation built around historically low interest rates. When rates change, when they move, so will the market. Um, and if you look at it very quickly and easy, and this is just opinion, not fact, when we're at 3 or 4%, the affordability for the most Americans who are buying based off payment, if they buy a $300,000 house at 4% interest rate, Let's just call it a $1,200 a month payment without figuring it out, whatever that is. Rates go up to 7%. They can still only afford $1,200 a month. That now means that you're looking at a $225,000 house. So at some point when rates get to whatever normal is, which I don't know what normal is anymore, there has to be a compression on value because inventory will rise, affordability will still be the same, but the buying power of your money to go with that inflation isn't going to be there anymore. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to watch, I guess, is all we can say. Right. So every market creates opportunity, right? And what am I better geared to do now if it was a full-on collapse? Um, I have REO business still in my real estate company. I go out and hit the road and do that. You know what that's like, Pat, knocking on some doors. Yep. And uh, I would buy a lot more rentals. My only regret through that downturn was that I didn't acquire a rental portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, part of me wonders if it will ever happen again like it, like it did. You know what I mean? If, if you missed out on the last one. And, and I agree with you. You know, I, I wish I, as many people do, wish they had backed up the cart, you know, more in 10 and 11 but you don't know. I mean, nobody ever knows. Some, you know, very few do. I, I don't know. I think if it happens again, it's certainly not going to be a collapse like a, like a, like a complete disaster uh, sort of thing. I think it's going to be a slower thing. I think it's going to be harder to predict the bottom. Agreed. Agreed. I, I'm not a doomsday person. I don't think that we're not heading for 2008. I just don't, it's not as much of a perfect storm. I just think the underlying fundamentals are flawed. 
on how we got here and how we got yeah. here. No, that's right. That's right. It'd be interesting to watch. Nobody knows. No. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the best thing you could do, I guess, is kind of buy a little here and there, kind of like dollar cost averaging, so long as your returns work. I think where people get screwed is they buy stuff that the returns don't make any logical sense on. You know what I mean? They're buying rentals and, and, and the numbers are, they don't even make the, not only do they not make the 1% rule, they don't make the half a percent or the quarter percent rule. You know, they're buying these commercial buildings with a four cap and it's just, it's just stupid. You know, it is real estate investment. Yeah, it's reckless. It doesn't really earn you anything. I mean, you can make 4% doing other things without having to take on any risk, you know? Right, that are completely liquid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, but, you know, you touch on something that's deeper, tying back to the other part of it, right? So how are the fundamentals, right? So what's fueling the massive amount of rentals being purchased? And, you know, rents, if I get $1,200 on a building, right? But my mortgage, you know, in leverage, I put 20% down or whatever that looks like, whatever you can do. You know, at three, four, five percent, whatever it is, today's going rate looks much different than if you have to buy a building at the same rate and pay a ten percent interest rate on it. The fundamentals don't work, you know. So, so then, then it makes it hard to sell, right? But the beauty of having a rental is you're locked in at that rate, right? And as long as you manage it properly, if you are locked into that rate. Now, a lot of these things, right? You get commercial loans on. At least I, I my, personally, I have commercial loans on a lot of stuff. So, you know, yeah. you know, if I can get a 30 year fixed rate at these market prices, you know, these market rates, then yes. But I think a lot of people are going out there and they're, you know, using hard money and they're getting commercial loans and a lot of that stuff gets called due in a couple of years. Oh, for sure. Actually, I could tell you a great story. Uh, either here or later about a commercial loan that I had in 2008 that they called due when I was paying every payment. Um, yeah, go ahead, tell it. All right, so I bought a piece of property in Baltimore that I still own, and now I'm working on final development on either to build a 13-unit apartment building or to build seven townhomes. But anyways, it's a garage, garages, open lot in Highland Town, an emerging neighborhood next to a waterfront neighborhood. And I buy it, and I was going to do it then. But I was smart enough to see that the market was collapsing. I hadn't torn down the building. So I was bringing in 4000 a month in rental income. So I said, okay, I can sit back and pay it and weather any storm. It doesn't matter. It just pushes it out one year, two year, five year, 10 year. Well, in 2009, um, the bank, as a national bank, got bought by an international bank. Now, what happened was most covenants of loans, and I don't know if anybody doesn't realize this, please you know, take heed to it is that they have golden parachutes for themselves built into them. As an example, I'm required to submit by the covenants of that loan um, business tax returns by March the 31st. Well, everybody knows it's not due till the 15th and most business people have multiples and it gets somewhere in the summer or whatever with extensions. So on May the 1st, they said, give me a call, said, um, you owe us 375,000 and we'd like it in the next 30 days. And I was like, why? And they said, well, your tax returns were due to us on um, March the 31st. And now you're actually in default, so we're calling the loan due. In that, it set off a process where I said, I'm paying. You're messing with the wrong person. I have rents in place. You don't need to mess with this. You don't have to worry about it going back and forth. So they got bought out by a company called Standander, Santander, or something like that out of Spain. And what happened was 
they put it into default. Now I was sending the payments in and instead of applying the payments the way they should, they were actually applying the payments straight towards principal and counting me delinquent, right? So they were saying, you're basically paying down your loan. So I said, okay, timeout. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm taking what I would normally pay you, putting it into an escrow account. When you want to actually apply standard accounting procedures to this, the all funds will get released to you and be brought up. So in this, we're going back and forth. Out of the blue one day, I get a call from a guy who I actually know here in Baltimore who bought the note. And he bought the note for, I, he won't tell me to this day, <laughs> but he bought it from somewhere from 10 to 20 cents on the dollar. The moral of the story is I was a $375,000 performing loan that they put into default and then sold off for pennies on the dollar. It worked for me because what happened was he came back and we worked out a deal where I'm paying him uh, as if he turned into a $2,000 a month payment for 15 years, straight principal and it's paid off. So now, you know, I only have like eight years left on it or less than 200 grand and it worked out. But in the end, the moral of the story is when things happen like this, you can't predict what they're going to do. You know, did he, did he keep the principal at 375 or did he lower yeah. it? We did a curtailment as well. We knocked it down to, I forget the number, 325 or 350, whatever it was, it worked out for both Just sides. a little bit. And then yeah. you got an interest, you got a no interest loan. Yeah, 0% interest. I'm just paying him straight principal. Yeah, which still works for him because let's, yeah. let's, let's say, I mean, 10%, 20 by, you know, that's, that's crazy if it really happened. But you think he paid 30, 40, 50,000 for that? He paid less than 100. I know that. That's what he said. I was like, North 100? He's like, shook his head no. <laughs> so, wow. So, geez. I mean, that, that's a huge mistake and you know that's that's what does today you know he he buys you know those bulks he's got a whole company that does that um but that's 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 fascinating you know and and, and at least you got out of it right i mean you it worked out for you right you're still happy and it did deal 15 years fixed no interest oh it's a really good deal right yeah, 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 for sure. Still paying on today. You know, and, and the, I guess the thing in it is, you know, the fever or like the this scarcity mindset that we got to clear our books, whatever, push them into making bad decisions. Luckily for me, for whatever reason, it worked out, right? But like, I didn't have control of that situation. Like, I can distinctly remember talking to the guy at the bank and he said, you know, in our second or third conversation, we need 375000 I started jiggling the drawer. I was like, you hear that? He's like, yeah. I was like, that's the petty cash drawer. It's empty. You're in business with me. Let's figure this out. Wow, that's crazy. And the the sad part about it is he could have, you know, the new guy, if you had not known him or it was somebody out of state or or just a dick, could have foreclosed on you. Yes. Right? And then flipped it, right? If they were aggressive or shrewd, you know, they could have foreclosed on it. You wouldn't have been able to pay them at that time. Nobody was loaning money. I remember that time. Yep. Um, you know, there was no buyout loan for me. Like I was in a situation where I'm like, I, I look. There's you know court proceedings, not not necessarily, but like I was prepping myself for that. Like going, I have the money. It's sitting here. Here's their accounting practices. This isn't right. You know, I had every intention to pay. You see, every payment was made, and here are the rest of the payments sitting in an escrow account. But they can, but they can do that because on my commercial loans, correct. They require those tax returns. And I, I don't do, I haven't done taxes. 
I extend my taxes to October 15th, probably for the last 10 years, just because it just takes forever to get K-1s in, you know, and some of them I don't get to October 14th. So, you know, um, and, and, and I have to explain that to them every year. So that, that is a realistic scenario today. If they want to, they can pull a lot of these commercial loans. If the market changes, beware and make sure you, that's, that's the moral of the story. If the market changes, they're not going to mess with it now because everything's good. Everybody's living. Yeah, because they want their money, and you know, yeah. chances are it's a little. And their loans are, you know, five and a half percent instead of their mortgages, three and a half or four. I mean, so they're happy with it, you know, now. But they, like you said, there might be a time where it's like, oh, this is a bad deal. Yeah, for sure. I can tell you the only thing that's really good about getting older is gaining wisdom and experience like this. So you know if it happens again, how to deal with it. It's certainly not losing hair and it's certainly not getting more wrinkles, right? And there's nothing worse because I've been in this situation too. Uh, not, Not the exact sort of situation, but I've been in a situation where, you know, I needed money fast and didn't have it. And had to scramble and beg to get it. And it was one of the most painful experiences of my life. It just, it was a pain in the ass because I am not built to, yeah, I'm very conservative. You know what I mean? I'm not built to be begging. I'm not built to be that guy. You know, I want to be the guy that people are begging. (laughs) It was terrible, you know, and, and and I think this is a great story that you told because, you know, it will happen again and it can happen again. And people need to realize that the rug could be pulled from them, uh, you know, at any time, just like the 10 people out of 12 that you worked with at the mortgage company uh, that went bankrupt, you know? And I think speaks to the power of abundance and being around guys that really, you know, at a higher level, get and understand leverage, debt leverage, horizontal income streams, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's really good to surround yourself with people who are helping to change your thought process and make sure that you're setting yourself up for any market, really, you know. Yeah, we're, I'm having, a, our GoPod is getting together and we are doing a, um, how am I judgment proof exercise where we're all going around and saying how we're judgment proof. Right. And I think part of that, in addition to wills and trusts and, uh, you know, insurance should be uh, what loans do I have? What are the loan to values and are the interest rates fixed or, or flexible? And if they're flexible, you know, also when do they come due? I mean, that's a great, thing to look at that I think we overlook, you know? For sure. That's great. That's awesome. Well, Josh, this has been a blast, buddy. I I appreciate you coming on the show and, um, you know, best of luck to you. I'll see you next week when you come down, you and your wife come down to Charleston. I'm looking forward to it. Me too, buddy. Appreciate the time. Grab life big.